Have this mind among um, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Rod. It's uh, so good to be with you all today. It's, it's been a real joy just to run into Rod at a few different places, like he was saying, at Pastors Fellowship, and uh, just that we were uh, teaching uh, uh, classes at, at the Master's College Extension there, and just to have a good fellowship to find out how much we have in common. And the most important thing that we have in common is that we love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I think we all have that in common if we're here this, this day to worship him. It's because we love the Lord Jesus. So it's, it's such a pleasure to be with you, just to hear a little bit about what the Lord's doing in your midst here and to see you uh, worshiping him. And I love to teach the word of God. I hope you love to listen to the word of God. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. And the title of our sermon is, Have This Mindset in You. Uh, a subtitle might be, The Significance of of Jesus Christ incarnation. You know, we're going to be celebrating Christmas here soon, and I hope that as we study Philippians chapter 2, it'll help us to really uh, maybe get away from just, the, the, just the, the image of the baby in the manger, which is wonderful, but also to be thinking about what our Lord Jesus did for us in taking on human flesh and the humility that it took, and what that means for us as we consider uh, the mindset of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of narcissism? I'm sure that you have. Uh, but did you know where, where it came from, the term narcissism? It, it comes from Greek mythology and the Greek god Narcissus. In Greek mythology, Narcissus was a handsome youth, the son of the river god Cephasus. And because of his great uh, beauty, many women fell in love with narcissists. Now that's why my wife fell in love with me, so we, we kind of have something in common. But, but he repulsed their advances. Among the lovelorn maidens was the nymph Echo, who had incurred the displeasure of Hera and had been condemned by the goddess never to speak again except to repeat what was said to her. Echo was therefore unable to tell Narcissus of her love, but one day, as Narcissus was walking in the woods, he became separated from his companions. When he shouted, Is anyone here? Echo joyfully answered, Here, here. Unable to see her hidden among the trees, Narcissus cried, Come. Back came the answer, Come, come, as Echo stepped forth from the woods with outstretched arms. Narcissus cruelly refused to accept Echo's love. She was so humiliated that she hid in a cave and wasted away until nothing was left of her but her voice. To punish Narcissus, the avenging goddess Nemesis made Narcissus fall hopelessly in love with his own beautiful face as he saw it reflected in a pool. As he gazed in fascination, unable to remove himself from his image, he gradually pined away. At the place where his body had lain grew a beautiful flower honoring the name and memory of Narcissus. It's interesting how the, the Greeks sort of worked out these ideas. Where did echo come from? You know, where did narcissism come from? But it's quite a picture, isn't it, to think of this person so in love with himself that in looking at an image of himself in the water, couldn't pull himself away and died because he was so enthralled 
with himself. Well, we live in a culture today that is very narcissistic, don't we? Very, very narcissistic. A world that promotes self-centeredness. People are in love with themselves. And, you know, it's the tendency of all people. Uh, Fast food restaurants will say, have it your way. School teachers tell their students, you can do whatever you want in this life. Do whatever you want to do. Psychologists encourage patients to go and find themselves and not to blame themselves for anything, but to learn to love themselves. And they teach that to believe in yourself and to have a positive self-image is the ultimate happiness and the ultimate expression of humanity. Even the the military... uh, tried to piggyback on this whole idea of self-centeredness and their recruiting uh, 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 tactics when the army came up with this line, you could be an army of one, an army of one. Have you seen that? And little do they know when when these uh, recruits sign up for the army that they'll be stripped of all individuality when they go to boot camp. But at least to get you there, you, you could be an army of one. And so our culture is just so enamored with this. But the funny thing is that Jesus himself tells us that we don't need to learn to love ourselves, do we? Nobody ever, ever had to learn to love themselves. The Bible says we are to love our neighbor as we what? As we what? As we love ourselves. It's assumed. You do love yourself. And I do love myself. That's not the problem, okay? That's definitely not the problem. And Christmas, unfortunately, has become such an example of people loving themselves in commercialism, in materialism. And we just experienced that, didn't we, with Black Friday, right? After this year, you didn't get to completely uh, finish giving thanks because the stores opened at 4 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day so we could go all start being narcissistic and get out there and get those deals a little bit faster this year. So we get the idea, right? But this often, this narcissism often bleeds over into the church as well. Many churches are started these days by surveying the community to find out what people want in a church and then tailoring that church to people's felt needs and then giving the community the church that they always wanted. And so the question that people might have coming to a church is, what can this church do for me? What can this church do for me? And and someone might say, I didn't get that much out of that service. I I, I didn't get much out of that. That's a very narcissistic thought, isn't it? And then some people might say, if they've been at a church for a while and and they're not feeling like their needs are being met, I'm leaving that church because it didn't meet my needs. Often people don't want to serve in ministries that are behind the scenes because they don't get recognition for their service. So I'm not being recognized, therefore, you know, that's, that's not serving me. And sometimes when people get into a leadership role, they begin to act as if uh, that ministry belongs to them and they become hostile to anyone who might threaten their position. And so these are some of the ways that this bleeds into the church. Sometimes when people come for counseling, they want help in the situations of their life. Uh, they want to have their problems fixed. Please fix me. to Make everything okay. However, when it comes to being uh, confronted with the Word of God and what the Word of God would say to them in terms of changing, they're not interested in bowing their hearts to the authority of God's word. So these are some of the ways that our narcissistic society affects the church and people's understanding of the church. And it's this very selfish kind of mindset that was creeping into the church at Philippi. Okay? In many ways, the church at Philippi was a very faithful church. They were one of the, in fact, the only church that Paul planted that after he planted the church, they quickly said, we want to support you as you go on planting other churches. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? They were just a baby church, and Paul was barely down the road, and they, and they sent support to him, saying, hey, we want to support you. That's a good start, isn't it? You receive the gospel, 
you receive the Apostle Paul for who he is, and you receive the Word of God for what it really is, and you say, I want to be a part of the ministry of the Word, and we're going to give to that. And that's how they started. And so this was a good church. They loved the gospel. They loved gospel workers. And even at this time, Paul is imprisoned in Rome uh, for the sake of the gospel, and they had sent a gift to Paul. Uh, they had sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to go and minister to him and give him a gift. And they were, uh, uh, they, they were once again wanting to support him. There was a gap there of support, but now they had stirred themselves up and say, let's support Paul. They sent Epaphroditus, and they wanted to support the gospel. So that's all good. But there was a problem with their gospel witness in Philippi. Here was the problem. It wasn't that they didn't preach the right message. And it wasn't, again, that they weren't supporting the work of the gospel. It wasn't that they weren't gathering in the name of the gospel. But there was a problem with the gospel witness in Philippi. Here's what it was. There was a spirit of self-centeredness, a spirit of strife, a, a spirit of politicking, a selfish agenda that had crept into the church and was very subtly taking their focus off of Christ and putting the focus back on self. And the, the prime and classic example of this, and you all know it if you know your Bible well, is Philippians chapter 4, Yodi and Syntyche, right? Yodi and Syntyche. They were having, these two women were having such friction with one another that they had to be called out by name in a letter from the Apostle Paul. That's pretty serious. Can you imagine if you were Yodi and Syntyche and in that the, the uh, person came to read the letter from Paul, and you were named, that's, that's a serious conflict. And so, as Paul began to challenge them, he made it very clear what his main encouragement was. And we find the main encouragement, the, the whole uh, message of Philippians can be found in one verse, Philippians 1.27, kind of the key verse of the letter. And Paul says this in Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, I want you to live worthy. I want you to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippian, the, the Philippians uh, considered themselves very special in the Roman Empire because they had a special citizenship. If you were a citizen of Philippi, you had the same rights and privileges as a, as a citizen of Rome. Tax exemption, special treatment, so many different things, land grants from the emperor himself. And so they really prized their citizenship in Philippi but Paul says, I want you to prize your citizenship as a citizen of heaven, but I want you to walk worthy. I want you to live fitting as those who are citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how would they do that? Well, they needed to stand firm. They needed to come together like, uh, like soldiers on the front line in lockstep in a battle with one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what was missing. That's what was missing at Philippi, a unified togetherness that was driven by one agenda, and that agenda was the advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that everything else was pushed to the side, and that's what was driving them. One agenda. If you have one spirit, one mind, what do you have? You have like one man, right? The, the, the church that honors Christ is a church that comes together as one person made after the image of Jesus Christ and walks together for the sake of the gospel. If we don't have that, then we have a real problem with our witness. We can preach the right gospel. We can even support gospel workers. But if we're not lockstep, unified, one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel then we don't have a clear witness for Christ. And so what they needed to do was to take them fo their focus off themselves. Now let's, let's read down. This is all introduction, and, 
I don't know if, if Pastor Rod does this in like half the sermon's introduction, but sometimes this is the way that it is. I want us to set the table here to understand this text. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 says this. This is the near context. We're getting closer to our text here this morning. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Within those words, selfishness or, and empty conceit are this, this idea of politicking or sort of pushing others out of the way to get ahead for yourselves. Okay? And that's the way the world does it, right? You want to advance in the system of the world and business or different ways. You kind of push others to the side. You step on people to get ahead and kind of vault yourself forward. Put yourself out there. Get yourself ahead. Think about number one, okay? But Paul says not so in the church. Instead, consider others as more important and consider their interests, not just yours, Okay? So that's a, that's a big challenge laid out there. Is that hard for any of you? This is hard for me sometimes, okay? It's hard for me to set my own agenda aside and say, I think actually your idea is probably better than mine. Is that ever hard for you? Say, I, you know what? You're right. I think I might be wrong. Is that hard? It's really hard, isn't it? And to say, you know what? I'm going to spend more time really dwelling on what's best for others than on what I think is best for myself. That's really challenging. And Paul knows that that's challenging, okay? And so he's going to give them an encouragement that's going to help them. And we need to be encouraged in this way. And so this is what we find in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 is this ultimate example, this ultimate encouragement of what it means to take the focus off of self and have a mindset that is others-oriented. Where do we find that mindset? It's the mindset of Jesus Christ. And this is actually a major theme in the book of Philippians. Uh, I was privileged to study this book with a, uh, a youth group back in Green Bay, Wisconsin. We went through it over a couple of years. And I found out that this idea of mindset is all through the book of Philippians. But this is the key passage that establishes what this mindset is. This mindset. Now, if we want to stay here today and on into till about midnight, we could trace that mindset theme all the way through Philippians, but we're not going to do that. So we're just going to come into this key text here and try to understand the mindset of Christ. And we're going to consider two exhortations from the mindset of Christ so that we can have the proper mindset for reflection on Christ's incarnation and our communion together to get today and then to be able to go out with this mindset to advance the gospel together. So two exhortations from the mindset of Jesus Christ so we can have that mindset, okay? And so the first exhortation is this. Adopt Christ's mindset of humility as our model. Adopt Christ's mindset of humility as our model. We find this in verses 5 through 8. Paul says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I prefer the term mindset. Have this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying this in such a way that in the Greek, it's a present tense verb. So you get this idea of this is the continual mindset that you always, always, always should have. This should be your constant way of of thinking. In everything you do, in everything you say, you should be characterized by this mindset. What kind of mindset did Christ have that we need to understand and then by God's grace through the Holy Spirit within us, adopt for ourselves? Well, verses 6 through 8 go on to tell us. And these are some of the richest descriptions of Christ's incarnation, of what Jesus was doing when he took on human flesh, when he came down and was born of a virgin, when he was the baby in the manger. And so we need to reflect on what Christ did for us in coming to be our Savior. 
Now, there's three ways that we can follow Christ's mindset of humility to adopt this for ourselves. First of all, if we want to adopt this mindset of humility, we need to perceive, perceive our position as a chance to give and not get. Perceive your position that God has given to you as a, a, an opportunity to give and not get. Look at verse 6 with me, if you will. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now there's, there's some explaining that's necessary to really get what Paul is saying here. Literally, Paul says, who in the form of God constantly is existing, not, grasp, not grasping regarded it to be constantly equal with God. What does this mean? Well, I think the translation here is a little bit misleading uh, when it says that he existed in the form of God. That almost makes you think that at one time Jesus existed in the form of God, then he stopped existing in the form of God. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Instead, I think he's saying Jesus always, always, always exists in the form of God. When he came to the earth, he didn't give up his godhood, okay? If you think of Jesus as laying aside his godhood and not being God anymore when he was on the earth, you have, you have a wrong perspective of that. The New Testament teaches that he is the image of the invisible God, and as Hebrews chapter 1 would say, the exact representation of his nature. That is fundamentally who Jesus is. He didn't give up his godhood, okay? So he constantly exists in the form of God. Now, if I had asked one of you to come up here and we had a, a little chalkboard or a whiteboard, and I said, I want you to draw God for me on the board, would anybody be able to do that? And just give us a perfect representation that will forever clarify to us what God is like. Can't do it, right? Isn't that why God said, don't make any images of me? Anything that we could possibly make would be degrading to him. And so when we think about the form of God, that's a hard thing for us to get our minds around, isn't it? But I want you to think about this. How about the glory of God? Still a hard concept. But we get a little bit of an idea of the shining forth of his majesty and his character and his abilities. The fact that God is everywhere present. The, the fact that God is unchanging. The fact that God has all power. Okay, The fact that God has all knowledge. And when we look at his creation around us, and this is a fallen world, we see heaven and earth shouting to us without any words that this God is glorious and worthy of our praise. Don't we see that? We look at our own abilities that God has given to us, the human mind, its ability to process, uh, and, and its creativity, and, and the birth of a baby, and so many different things, right? We see the glory of God all around us if we're looking, if our eyes have been opened to that truth, don't we? Well, Jesus constantly exists in the form of God. He has all of the same qualities because he is God, and he's worthy of worship and praise. Okay, And as the Son of God, uh, Jesus was there, and he was involved in creating this, this beautiful world. Okay, And as the Son of God, he deserves all worship and praise. So the point here is this exalted position that Jesus had and the right to all of that glory that he deserves, okay? But holding that position, constantly existing in the form of God, Paul says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is kind of a difficult text, and there's a lot of different things that have been written about it. But looking at the big picture of Philippians, uh, I take that to mean that in, in his exalted position as God, Jesus had the right and the power to go and get for himself. To leverage all of his power and all of his authority and to do everything he did in coming to earth to get for himself and to cause others to serve him and worship him and to leverage everyone else's agenda to his own agenda. Did he not have the right to do that? Sure he did. 
absolutely. If anybody had the right to have everything center around him in coming to earth, it was Jesus. But you know what Paul says? He didn't do that. He did not come grasping. Okay? Now, the Caesars of, of this time and, and the kings of the earth, they certainly used their position to leverage their advantage and their agenda, didn't they? I mean, think about the things that uh, Augustus Caesar did. Think about the things that Herod did if you're, if you're a student of history. I mean, they were always trying to leverage other people to accomplish their agenda. Okay, but Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he came with an attitude of blessing others, not an attitude of getting for himself. He didn't come grasping, all right? And so I want us to think about this. If we want to uh, adopt Christ's mindset of humility, it starts with perceiving whatever position that we have as an opportunity to give and not to get. If you've been given a position of leadership in the church, you have a great platform not to grasp for yourself, but to give to bless others. If you own a business, manage a business, or if you've been given some platform in, in the work world that you work in, it is an opportunity not to get for yourself and to leverage others to best serve you, but it's an opportunity to leverage that situation to serve others. Those of us who are uh, heads of homes. God has not made us the head of our homes so that we could uh, leverage all of that to our agenda and to our advantage and to use that position to get, but that's a position to give. If you rise to a place of government, that is an opportunity to humble yourself to bless others. And if you're over anyone in any way whatsoever, as a Christian, the mindset of Jesus is to use that position to give and not to get. That, that's the key thought here. Okay? So we, we perceive our position as a chance to give and not to get. Secondly, in, in adopting this humble mindset of Jesus, we ought to be pouring ourselves out to serve others. Very similar, but just a little different angle here. Pour yourselves out to serve others. Look at verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Okay? Now there's been also a lot of ink spilled over that verse from theologians and pastors who try to understand it. But as I pull back and just look at this, I actually think that we've overcomplicated this thing quite a bit, all right? Uh, what's often said, this passage is called theologically the kenosis from the Greek word here, uh, ekenosin, who's here, and it's translated um, in, in uh, the New American Standard, emptied. Uh, I'm not sure what it is in your translation, but this emptying of self. And so they call it the kenosis, and there's this big question, what did Jesus empty himself of? And, and Rightly so, Christian theologians have adamantly said he did not empty himself of his godhood. And we already talked about that a little bit. So that's important. Okay? But then there's this question, what did he empty himself of? And the, probably the classic definition, that, that's probably a pretty good one, is, well, he emptied himself of his right to the independent use of his attributes. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, that, mean, that means that Jesus, when he was in heaven, had the free exercise of all of his attributes, his power, his authority. But on earth, he became subject to the will of the Father and was directed through the Holy Spirit to only use his divine attributes as directed by the Father. Now, theologically, I completely agree with that truth, that that's how Jesus operated on earth. However, I don't think it has anything to do with this passage, okay? And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Here's what I, here's what I think that Paul is saying simply that Jesus emptied himself. In other words, he poured himself out. He poured himself out. We're going to see later there's an Old Testament passage that says he's going to do exactly that. Okay? So no problem with the theology of the kenosis there. 
But I think as a matter of emphasis here, what's happening is Paul's saying Jesus had the highest position that anyone has ever had. You think you have a high position? Jesus has had the highest position. And he leveraged that not to get, but to give. And in doing so, he poured himself out entirely to be a blessing to others. And that's the mindset that we're called to. When we think of Jesus this Christmas and what he did, we should be thinking, he poured himself out for me. He poured himself out. He didn't hold back at all. Okay? Now think about this. Paul says he took on the form of a slave. He took on the form of, it says in some text, a bondservant. But that's just that word doulos. In, in the first century Greek, that was a garden variety slave. Slaves were all over the place in the first century. And I, we're talking real slavery. Someone who is owned by another and has no rights and no privileges of their own. No property. You don't have an agenda when you're a slave. Your agenda is your master's agenda for you. And that is the form that Jesus took on. Now, he was still God, but he adopted this form of being a slave. All right? And not only that, but it goes on. It says, and being made in the likeness of men, in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. What does that mean? You know, if you ran into Jesus... If you were around during the time he was walking the earth and you ran into him, you wouldn't think he was anything special at all. He, he would just li look like your everyday, ordinary, average, first century Jewish man of 30-some years old. Well, that's what he looked like. He didn't have a halo over his head. Okay. He took on that lowly appearance. Okay. And the, the form that he adopted was one of being a slave. In other words, um, while he was on the earth, he served everyone else's needs. Isn't that what Jesus did when he went around? I mean, you think about the amazing miracles that he did, healings and things like that. But he would stand there for hours on end with people coming to him and heal and heal and heal and teach and teach and teach and then go out to the next city and do the same thing. And he wore himself out to the point of exhaustion, had nowhere to lay, he, lay his head, it was homeless, essentially, going around, nowhere to lay his head, whoever would take him in and take care of him. But he was just going about representing the kingdom of God and serving others. He made himself the servant of everyone. He just served, and he served, and he served. And uh, did not call others to, to serve him while he was here in that way where now later there's there's definitely Jesus will commission those to a task but on earth he served everyone else all right and that's that's a staggering contrast i mean just again to think about Jesus in all of his glory and and no limitations let's go back to this just so we are understanding this some more no limitations. I mean, Jesus as the Son of God, is he, is he bound by, um, by time? Is he, is he bound by energy? Is he bound by uh, matter? Any of the things that are the constructs of our world, is Jesus bound in any of, in any of those ways as the Son of God? No. But he subjects himself. God, very God, the Son of God, subjects himself to a human body. Now, we're used to this kind of thing, being being housed in a human body. But this is all new for Jesus, the Son of God. And he takes on this appearance. And why did he do that? Why did he take on flesh? You know, just as a little example for us, if, if you would go from being a human to taking on the rough form of an ant, okay, and embracing the life of an ant, that would be a far less contrast than the contrast of the Son of God taking on humanity. Do we understand that? The, the distance between his position as God and taking on human flesh. But he did that in order to pour himself out for us. 
William Carey is known as the father of modern missions, and he took a trip, uh, I'm sorry, he, he took the gospel to India. And he's known for this saying, expect great things of God, attempt great things for God. In other words, if we understand who God is and, and what his work is in the world, we ought to, as we yield ourselves over to him, expect that he use us and, and accomplish great things through us. So he's kind of challenging people to step out in faith, especially for the cause of missions. When he died at, at age 73, he had seen the scriptures translated and printed into 40 languages. He'd been a college professor. He had founded a college at Serampore in India. He had, seen the, he had seen India open its doors to missionaries. He had seen the edict passing prohibition of, of satai, which was burning widows on, on, their, on the funeral pyres of their dead husbands. In other words, he saw major changes happen because of the gospel spread in India. Many, many converts. When he was on his deathbed, William Carey called out to a missionary friend named Dr. Duff. Dr. Duff, you've been speaking about Dr. Carey. When I'm gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's God. Okay, so William Carey understood this. That devoting his life to everything that he did in India, he didn't want anyone to be thinking about him and his sacrifice. Why? Because he was consumed with this sacrifice in Philippians chapter 2, the sacrifice of Jesus and what Jesus did. And all of his work in being a missionary was all just to say, I want to have this mindset in me that was in Jesus, and I want to pour myself out for the cause of the gospel. But after doing that, I don't want anyone to think I'm anything great. Because there's only one who is great and only one sacrifice worthy of all of our attention and recognition, and that is this sacrifice here in Philippians chapter 2. Do we have that motivation? Just say, in some small way, I want to mirror this mindset of Jesus in pouring myself out for the sake of his gospel. Are you using your opportunities and gifts that God has given you to pour yourself out to serve others? Or are you still consumed with the selfish agenda that is so prevalent in our world? Have you submitted your will to the will of the Father, or are you driven by your will instead? Now, all of us wrestle with this, I guarantee it. All of us wrestle with the idea of having our own agenda, our own will. It's going to be a daily battle, but have we embraced this mindset, and this is this what we want out of life, we want to have the old mindset pass away, and we want the new mindset of Jesus to come. In verses 7 and 8, we're going to see also, as we seek to adopt the humble mindset of Christ, we need to pursue humility as an obedient servant, even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Again, he was made in the likeness of man. And so he took on that human flesh. And that was humbling for him. And to be a slave to everyone else. But notice how low he went. As you follow this, Jesus keeps going lower and lower and lower and lower. And look how low he goes. Jesus died a criminal's death on a cross. Now, we're used to this. We're used to people wearing necklaces with this crucifix and this, this nice jewelry, right? But crucifixion is an ugly, ugly thing, okay? It was the cruelest form of of capital, capital punishment, okay? It was developed by the Persians to be ruthless and cruel to their enemies so that everyone would bow to their rule, and it was perfected by the Romans, okay? It is a shameful, shameful death and a horrible death. It's the death of a criminal. And Jesus took that death for us, this one who constantly exists in the form of God and is worthy of all the glory of God, not only humbled himself in taking on human flesh, but he humbled himself in 
dying on the cross for sinners. And why did he do that? Why did Jesus die on the cross? It says he became obedient to the point of death. Did you know Jesus died because that was the will of the Father for him? Okay, sometimes people think about what caused the death of Jesus. Well, it was was the terrible uh, Romans, or it was the Jews and their rejection of him, or it was Satan and his demons. There's there's some truth to all those things, but Jesus died on the cross for sinners because it was the Father's will and he was being obedient to the Father's will. Okay? That's why he died there on the cross because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in eternity past chose that Jesus would be the Redeemer for sinners. Okay? Let's let's read some verses that talk about this. Luke 22, verses 41 through 42. And this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In his humanity, Jesus was feeling the full weight of the fact that the Father was about to pour out his cup of wrath upon him. The cup of wrath. In the Old Testament, this cup that he's talking about is always this cup of God's wrath that's being stored out and going to be poured out in God's punishment. And Jesus is saying, if there's another way, you know, let's do it another way. But if this is what needs to happen, then I submit myself to your will, Father. So he did that. He became obedient even to the point of death. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This was the plan of God. The plan of God was that his own son would lay his life down in the place of sinners. Now, we were made for one purpose. And that is to glorify God, to use our bodies, to use our minds, to use our whole person, to reflect God's goodness and grace, and to point to his majesty and his worth. Now, Adam and Eve, when they took of the fruit, they began a different plan for the human race, a plan of rebellion, one in which we turn away from God's design for us, and we say, we don't need you, God. We're all about ourselves in our own way, And we want people to look to us and to think much of us instead of thinking much of you. And we're all tempted to some degree to live our lives that way. The Bible says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. The Bible says that on our own, no one is good. No one seeks after God. And we all go go our own way. The problem with that is that that ruins the whole purpose for why we exist, and it makes us worthy of God's punishment. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. Our sin and our rebellion of God is so serious that we deserve God's punishment forever and ever. That's the bad news. The good news is that God, in his wisdom and his grace, chose to send his own son to do what we've been describing here, to take on human flesh, uh, born of a virgin, born without sin, to grow up and to live the kind of perfect life that you and I can't live. He lived in perfection. The Bible says he knew no sin. Peter, who knew him intimately, said, this is one in whom there is no guile, there is no iniquity in him. He's perfection and humanity. You know what he is? He is what we're all supposed to be. Perfect humanity. But not only that, he's the son of God. And the Bible says that the Son of God, the perfect man, went to the cross for us in our place. 
the Bible says that God made Jesus, his own son, to become sin for us who knew no sin. When he was on the cross there dying, he was dying for our iniquity. He was being chastised in our place. And all of God's wrath was falling on him there at the cross. And all of it was expended. Jesus said when he died, he stretched out his hands and he said, it is finished. In other words, paid in full. I have accomplished everything that I came to do. I have exhausted God's punishment for sinners upon myself. For everyone who turns to me, all of their sins can be taken away. And so God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God has this plan, and it starts with this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For those who turn from their sin and turn to Jesus as their Savior, God has wiped away your sin because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and he offers you Jesus' righteousness so that you could be fully the Son of God and fully received because of Jesus. But what did it take? And I see many smiles on your face. And those of you who have received Jesus have great joy when you think of your acceptance before God in him. If you're here this morning and you don't have that sense of acceptance and you have this great weight of guilt on you because of your sin, you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ if you will turn from trust in yourself or any, uh, any other thing and believe on him and trust in him as your Lord and Savior and turn your life to him. You can be forgiven of your sins have the hope of heaven be restored to god be living your life for the one purpose for why you were made for his glory to serve him but you know something paul is taking all that the all the richness of that truth and saying listen he humbled himself so low that he was obedient to this horrific death on the cross in obedience to the father and this is the mindset that I'm calling you to, Paul is saying to the Philippians. This is what I'm calling you to. And, and so you might be in some situation where it's difficult to say, you know what, I, I have a hard time serving these people, you know, or, or you don't understand the situation that I'm in. But when we take Jesus' situation and what he gave up for us and his humility and his service, and his pouring out, his giving, giving instead of getting, and his obedience to the Father, no matter what, to accomplish our redemption, his love for us. Is there anything that God is calling us to do that's too much? Really? No. And that's the whole point. I mean, that's the, that's the dagger to Christian selfishness, isn't it? I mean, what can you say to that? But, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I want that mindset that you have. Jesus commanded his disciples to follow him to death. In Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So you, you might say, well, you're being a little dramatic when you say you need to humble yourself uh, to, as a servant in obedience to the point of death. Well, it's not too dramatic to say that if God wishes you to die for the sake of the gospel, that's not too much to ask, is it? It really isn't. Now, we may never, may never be called to literally lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. But if any of us was called to do that, right here in the words of Jesus, we should say, yes, I already committed to that long ago, that I'm going to follow you to death wherever you lead me because to follow Jesus is to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. Paul was willing, wasn't he? What did he say? Philippians 1.21 For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's Paul doing? Paul is speaking from experience, isn't he? He's under house arrest in Rome, shackled to a Praetorian guard and he's saying, hey, it's okay. For me to live as Christ, I, I have surrendered my whole agenda and my whole life to serving him. If that means being chained to a Praetorian guard in Rome right now, yes. Yes, Lord. And if that means death, yes. 
because my life is all about him. And he says in Philippians 2.17, following this passage, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And later on in his life, even though I don't think Paul died here when he was going to stand before Caesar here at this time, later on, he literally laid down his life for the gospel. And in 2 Timothy 4.6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. But you know something? Paul rejoiced in that. He, he was going to his death for the sake of the gospel, but he said, I rejoice. Why? Because in this way, I get to identify with the sufferings of Jesus, and I get to proclaim his death, and I get to exult in his sacrifice for me. Again, have you ever wondered if you would pay the ultimate price for your faith if you were in one of those situations where, you know, in, in a foreign country, maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be a foreign country in the days ahead, I don't know, but where it's like you either renounce Christ or die. You ever put yourself in those shoes? Have you ever thought about it? But you know, like I said before, the decision should already be made now. That yes, I'm going to obey you no matter what. Paul gave some examples. Timothy in, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2 was pouring himself out for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Paul says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your own welfare. For they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ. But Timothy was not like that. It says he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Timothy is an example. Epaphroditus, the one that they sent to minister to Paul, he went, he got sick. He didn't even want the Philippians to know about it because he just wanted to serve Jesus and he didn't want them to think about him and his sickness. He wanted them to be thinking about Paul. He wanted them to be thinking about the gospel. And he risked his life for the sake of the gospel. Timothy, Epaphroditus, Paul. What? As Paul comes to the end of his letter in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, remember Yodia and Syntyche? He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, let me tell you a secret. That word or that phrase, live in harmony, should be translated, have this same mindset in the Lord. Have this same mindset in the Lord. You know what, Yodi and Syntyche, who were bickering and striving together, having great civil war between each other, you know what the answer was to them getting along? That they would adopt the mindset of Jesus. That humble mindset of using your position to give and not get, pouring yourself out, being obedient unto God to the point of death. If that was their agenda, guess what? There would be no strife between Yodi and Syntyche. You ever have a problem with a Christian brother or sister in the church? You just cannot seem to resolve it no matter what? Do you know that that problem can be resolved? You say, well, you don't know what happened. You don't know the circumstances. It does not matter. If both of you will adopt or even one of you, will adopt a mindset of humility to use your position to give and not get, to pour yourself out to serve others, and to be obedient to God to the point of death, then you're, you won't have that struggle anymore because you'll be focused on advancing the gospel. And whatever, whatever issue that was causing the friction is not more important than advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it? And so we lay those things to the side and we have one spirit, one mind striving together. That's what Yodi and Syntyche needed. They needed that mindset, okay, in the Lord. Well, quickly, we've seen so far that if we want to fully have this mindset, if we want to understand the significance of the incarnation, then we need to adopt the humble mindset of Jesus. But secondly, and, and quickly, just by a word of closing, is to adopt Christ's exaltation as our expectation. Verse 9, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and earth and, earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You know something? When Jesus humbled himself, when, when he did everything that we just talked about and took on that mindset, you know what he was doing? He was yielding himself over to the Father and entrusting himself with the Father that this was the very best thing. And do you know what happened? Because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of his faithfulness, now Jesus has been exalted by God the Father and lifted up. And, and one day, he will rule and reign over the whole earth and everyone will acknowledge his lordship. Why is that? Well, I want, you, I want you to read a verse in the Old Testament that tells us why Jesus will have that exalted position. Isaiah 53, 12 tells us, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the tr- transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So again, I will allot him a portion with the great, he will divide the booty with the strong. Why? Because he poured out himself to death. You know what God the Father is going to do for all time to recognize the sacrifice of his own son? He's going to cause every being in the heavens and on earth to worship him and to exalt him and to bow before him and to proclaim his word forever and ever. Okay? But you know something? None of us are ever going to have that position. That belongs to only Jesus. However, there's a little bit of a pattern here. You say, you might ask the question, what's in it for me? You know, I want to tell you something. That's okay to ask. The disciples asked Jesus that. They said, what do we get, Lord? We've left all to follow you. And Jesus didn't say, you shouldn't be asking that question. He didn't say that. He told them that they were going to rule in the future kingdom. And he told them not only that, but he said no one who's ever given up uh, possessions, lands, or even familial relationships will not be granted uh, many more on this earth and in the future eternal life. God wants you to expect great things from him. The issue is uh, being able to trust God and humble yourself now, and that his gospel and his kingdom is so important to you that that's your agenda. But you know what? He's going to bring great blessing to you in the future. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul says this. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Now listen, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Paul was looking to future joy, future blessing from Jesus. He poured himself out as Jesus did, but he, always had, he also had the expectation that in Jesus' exaltation, that he would also be rewarded in due time. Okay? And so, let me ask you a question. Have you bowed your knee to Jesus Christ? In verse 10, it says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and under the earth. Bow your knee to Jesus Christ now. It's going to happen. You know, everyone is going to have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. But you have an opportunity now to do it willingly and, and gladly as the Holy Spirit works in your heart to serve him as Lord now. Have you done that? Have you recognized his lordship? Have you confessed him as Lord? It says in Philippians 2.11, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are we confessing him as Lord? I hope that you are. To say that he's Lord is to say that he's master. If you say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, then then you're saying exactly what we've talked about in this text that I've renounced my own personal agenda and my agenda is my master's agenda and his name is Jesus. And so this is my mindset to adopt his humble attitude, to give, pour, sacrifice. And then my also my attitude is to say, 
I'm not worried about being exalted. I'm not worried about lifting myself up. I've committed that over to the Father just like Jesus did. Do you you see that? I've given that over to the Father and I'll let God worry about lifting me up. It's like the great Puritan said in, in closing. As he prayed, one great Puritan preacher said this, teach us, Father, that the way up is down. The way up is down. So I hope that's an encouragement to you as we think about Christ's in, incarnation, its significance, that there's this mindset, and you say, I want to have that mindset. I want that to be constant for me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and thank you for this challenge, Lord. It's, it's humbling to us. Lord, it, it's, it's, it's beyond us. And so we ask by your spirit that you'd give us the grace to become more like Jesus, that we might have his mindset in humility, pouring, loving, serving, Lord, and, and yielding ourselves over to you and trusting ourselves to a faith, faithful Father that your way is best. May you be exalted. May you glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.